You ever been torn between two things? Like apples and oranges? Louisville or Kentucky? No. 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 I'm torn this morning. Uh, The loss of Houston, the loss of Joy's husband, the loss of an Ingram. Do we preach on that? Do we preach on that topic? Or do we continue in the passage that we have been walking through? We're going to continue with the passage that we're walking through, but I'm going to bridge it with what we're going through. Does that make sense? So turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. It's often been said here in our church, I don't know how folks get through life without a church family. So I want to kind of use that as an umbrella for today. If you're visiting with us, we've been walking through Matthew 16, 13 through 20. We've been chunking it up uh, week by week. And this week, we're talking about something that no one wants to talk about, church discipline. I want to go back to what I said a few seconds ago. I don't know how folks get through life without a church family. Has your mom or dad ever wringed your neck for a dumb decision? Maybe you've learned your lesson through life and just you've headed this way and somebody knocked you upside the head and you you come back this way. It's kind of what church discipline is. But if we use the word discipline, we all we fold our hands. That usually tells the speaker you're not listening. So just know that. I see you every week. No, I'm just kidding. When we think about church discipline, we usually shut down and close off. Well, how can how dare someone tell me what I'm doing right and doing what I'm doing wrong? We have to understand the words that we're going to read today are from Jesus. How great is he? And he gives the disciples and he gives the church instructions on how to handle this topic. I don't know how people get through life without a church family. If we look at church discipline like this, if I mess up and I know that I'm doing wrong, wouldn't I want someone to tell me? I would want my brother or sister in Christ to lovingly put their arm around me and say, hey, wake up. Where you're going is not good. And I want to bring you back. So that's kind of the topic that we're talking about today. We're going to read through our passage, Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, and we're going to catch up. We're going to spend our time in Matthew 18, even though our passage is Matthew 16. It's going to make sense here in a second. Let's read, starting in verse 13. Please stand as we continue our worship through the reading of God's Word. This is a part of our worship when we read the Word of God together as a family together. Uh, And so let's read this and then we'll pray. Verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning torn between life and what's to come. But God, I pray that as we read your word, as we apply your word or seek to understand your word, that we realize that the family of God is what you put in our lives to help us. That we can lean on our brothers and sisters. We can depend on our brothers and sisters. We can trust our brothers and sisters to bring us back when we make mistakes. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, who is the Christ. The only way that we can have salvation is in his name. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So, verse 19 is where we're going to camp out before we jump to Matthew 18. I want to give you the background. I'll give you the background every week. They're walking through, Jesus and the disciples are walking through Caesarea Philippi. This is an area, a Roman area, an occupied area by Rome, where they worshipped the Roman gods. They worshipped the pagan gods. They worshipped Caesar himself. And Jesus is asking his disciples in this context, who do the people say that I am? And the people say, well, you're one of the prophets. You're one of the good guys. John the Baptist, Jeremiah, right? Elijah. He's a good guy, a good teacher, someone that's from God that tells about God. Well, that answer, we've realized, falls drastically short of who Jesus is. And then Peter said, and Jesus makes it personal. He says, but who do you say that I am? This is a question that everybody in history has to answer. Who is Jesus? This morning, if you don't know who Jesus is, he is the Christ. He is the only name by which we can be saved. He is the only one who lived a sinless life. He's the only one who sacrificed himself on our behalf, holding back the wrath of God so that anyone who would believe in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. He is the Christ. And then he says to Peter, blessed are you because God has revealed it to you. He's blessed because he got the answer right, but he's also blessed because God has taken the heart of stone of a sinner and said, I love Jesus. He is my Christ. He is the Lord. And so Peter is blessed. And then he goes on, he says, and on this rock, this confession that I am the Christ, I am going to build my church. We talked about this last week, that Jesus is gathering for himself, gathering to himself a bride, those who place their faith and hope in him, and he makes them the church. Ecclesia is the word that he uses. It's the only time that's used in any of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Jesus uses the word twice in this passage and once in uh, Matthew 18. That's the two times. Ecclesia. It's a called out people by God. They are called out. It is an assembly of followers of Christ. That's the word that, that he uses. It's interesting that he uses this word. Look at verse 19. We're going to stop here for a second and then jump into Matthew 18. So get ready. Are you ready? Here we go. Verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now this passage, uh, there is a plethora. There are many books and scholars and theologians and pastors who've written on this, and there are many different ideas of what Jesus is saying. If we're not careful, we'll take this out of context. Well, Peter has the keys. If you look at, if you Google today, go home and Google Peter or Saint Peter or the disciple Peter or the apostle Peter. Google any of those things, and you'll see him. You'll see a painting of a person, and he's holding a key. You'll see it. It's 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 really the Catholic tradition. 
The Catholics believe that Peter received the key to the kingdom of God, that he could open or close the kingdom of God to anyone, and that Peter passed this down to the next pope or the first pope. And then from pope to pope to pope to pope to pope, the pope is the only one that has the right to allow entrance or denial to the kingdom of God. You've heard the jokes, when old St. Peter's at the gate. Why is Peter at the gate? Because they get it from this passage. He's got the key. But look at the context that Jesus is saying. He's saying, who do the people say that I am? Well, some say you're a good guy. You're a prophet. But who do you say that I am? Well, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one that's been prophesied about from the Genesis all the way to where they are now. And he calls Peter a rock. You, Peter, you rock, are right and you're blessed. Sorry, I just lost my train shot there. And on this rock, I will build my church. Peter's a rock, and on this boulder, this bedrock, this foundation, I will build my church. The foundation is that Jesus is the Christ. And then Jesus goes on and says, well, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. He's talking to Peter and the disciples. In Jesus' day, there were rabbis. Jesus himself was a rabbi. Rabbis were to have believed to be the ones who uh, bound or loosed things uh, in their teaching. So if I were to follow a rabbi... And I say, hey, Rabbi, I have this issue. And it goes up against the law of God. The rabbi either bound me or loosed me. Think about a key. What does a key do? Unlocks or locks, right? Bind or loose. Binding is prohibiting. Loosing is permitting. So if I were to take my case to a rabbi, a Jewish leader, and say, here's what I'm struggling with against the law of God. The rabbi had the authority, so believed, to either permit or prohibit whatever action or whatever thing that I'm dealing with. So why does Jesus say it to Peter and the disciples? You have the authority to bind or to loose. Does Jesus know something the disciples don't? If you go to the book of Acts, the disciples begin to preach the gospel. They're opening the door, right? They're preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And they were going to be establishing the church. The church that Jesus is building, now the, the apostles have the authority to say, this is right and this is wrong. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, who has the right to tell me what's right and what's wrong in my life? Because that's the context we're talking about today. We only have the authority of the Word of God. If the Word of God says it is wrong, that is what we will teach and preach. If the Word of God says it's okay... That is what we will preach and teach. Does that make sense? You'll never hear Pastor Ryan tell you, I believe this. Unless it's a one-on-one. -on -one. And I can tell you, I believe Louisville Cardinals are better than the Kentucky Wildcats. But if you ever hear Pastor Ryan say, well, I don't think that's right in the Word of God, you should run away as fast as you can. So Jesus is saying to Peter and the disciples, you now have the authority based on what I'm teaching you. Remember the, the Great Commission? Go into the entire world and teach them what? Teach them what you believe? Teach them what you like? Teach them everything that I have commanded. And so the disciples and the apostles are using this, the things that Jesus teaches, and they are binding and loosing. They are permitting and uh, prohibiting the church in the future. Now, keep this key. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. Jesus uses the same phrase in this passage, but then he now calls the church to do the same. First, it's Peter and the disciples. You have the authority to bind and loose. And now it's to the church. 
So go back to our main statement. If I'm walking wayward, right? That's the old term that we use. If I'm walking away from the truths that I profess, if I have one day said, I love Jesus, and I live my life in total opposition to that, wouldn't I want my brother or sister to come lovingly tell me, you are going the wrong way? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the Department of Transportation gives you signs that says, wrong way. Because they care about you. Why? Because they don't want you to die on head-on traffic. Shouldn't the church care about each other enough to say, I love you, but you're headed the wrong way? That's the context. Look at verse 15 of Matthew 18. Jesus uses the same exact phrase in this section dealing with church discipline. Verse 15 of Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to who? The church. This is the context. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if you agree, or if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We use that last phrase a lot. Well, if we're together, Jesus is with us. In the context that Jesus is saying, is like if you're talking about restoring a brother and you have to make a really difficult decision whether to keep them in the fold or to treat them as an unbeliever, and you're seeking unity in this, in love, Jesus is with the church that has to go through this decision process. We're going to unpack this. This is where we're going to kind of camp out. The first point is the longest. Second point gets a little shorter. Third point's really short because it's the conclusion. Does that make sense? Number one, restoration is the goal. Restoration is the goal. That's the word uh, restoration. When you think about church discipline, think about restoring our brother and sister in Christ. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. There's a lot of key things here. If your brother sins... We often point fingers at folks sometimes, don't we? Maybe they're not believers. Do you see how they're living? See my finger? I didn't point at anybody directly. See how he's living his life? We don't do that. Jesus is talking about those who professed him as Lord when your brother or sister in Christ sins. So there's an assumption there. We all what? Sin. We all mess up. We all make mistakes. And Jesus is saying, go to that person one-on-one. -on -one. The word uh, sin here that is used is missing the mark. Think about archery. Pull back your bow. What do you want the arrow to hit? The bullseye. When you don't hit the bullseye, it's called... Missing the mark. Abby's looking at me. She's judging me now on my archery terminology. I'm not very good at archery. I know you pull an arrow back with the bow and you let it go. 
There's some aiming involved in all that stuff. But if you don't hit the bullseye, you miss the mark. Well, what's the mark for the believer? If your brother sins, if your brother misses the mark, the mark is holiness. God says to His people in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, and in the New Testament, 1 Peter, be holy because I am what? Holy. When we sin, it's not in private. When we sin, it's not just a you thing. When we profess Christ and we sin, it is against a holy God. I have to be serious. I have to get louder. You're the the tone. When we sin, it is against a holy God who is without sin. Sin is serious. When left unchecked, sin is damning. It divides a family. It divides a church. It divides, it hurts your relationship with God Himself. He is without sin. God doesn't leave us in this state. He gives us His one and only Son, Jesus, who whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Awesome. But pastor, I still struggle with sin. We need accountability. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ to lovingly come alongside us and say, you're going the wrong way. I know what you're thinking. You're tempted right now in your head to check out and say, watch somebody try to tell me what I'm doing is wrong. Or, or I have no business telling anybody what's right and what's wrong. I mess up on a daily basis. Yes. And we need each other. We need level heads. We need open hearts to say, I love you, brother. I struggle with the same thing you've struggled with right now. And I want to walk with you. And Jesus gives us steps to take. Proverbs 25, 9 uh, and 10 says this, Argue your case with your neighbor himself, and do not reveal another's secrets, lest he who hears you bring shame upon you, and your ill repute have no end. Go one-on-one with your brother if there is sin involved. Lest gossip starts. How do you start a fire? With a match or a flicker. How do you stop a fire? You don't get that match out. You don't start gossiping. You go one-on-one with the individual. This word that he used, go and tell him his fault. This word tell him is to reprove. It's a word that says bringing something to light or expose something. When we sin, we often do it in what? Private or in the dark. Do you openly sin in front of your mom or dad? Do you openly sin in front of your grandma? Do you openly sin in front of the church? No. It's usually when we're alone. That's when Satan tempts us to do our worst. When we reprove someone, when we tell someone his or her faults, we don't do this out of, I'm better than you. Jesus says, before you remove a speck out of someone's eye, you have to do what? Remove the plank out of your eye. So before we go and tell each other, hey, I love you, but you're sinning, you're messing up, we need to make sure that we ourselves are right with God. We confess our sins on a daily basis, and He is just and loving and merciful to forgive us. Remember, the goal of discipline or restoration is not retaliation. It's not humiliation. 
I know where I've been. And I have no right to lord over someone else. But I have every calling and every yearning to be right with my brother and sister, to walk with them lovingly and say, I've been where you are. I know how to go the right way. <laughs> I, I, know, I know what's right and what's wrong based on what the Word of God says. James 5.19 says this, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The idea of wandering from the truth is not living according to the Word. Not living according to the confession that you've made in Christ Jesus. The number one claim of the church in our day and age for, for many years is that that place is filled with a bunch of... Why do we know that? It's sad that we know that. We know that we say one thing and we live a, another way. A church that's on fire in its community. A church that reaches the lost. A church that loves its neighbor is a church that's willing to say, this is right, this is wrong, based on what the Word of God says. We don't do this in an unloving manner. There are many folks that would rather point the finger instead of getting on my knees and, and getting in the mud and yuck and dirty and saying, I will walk with you through this. One-on-one. -on -one. We have to remember that. That's where Jesus starts. If your brother sins against you. Some versions don't have that against you. Some versions do. Many versions do. It doesn't matter. Your brother and sister sin. And when it happens, we go to them one-on-one. -on -one. Is anybody uncomfortable yet? Let's go deeper. Are we displaying the love of God if we turn a blind eye to sin? Romans 5.8 God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John says we love because He first loved us. If you've experienced the forgiveness and love and grace of God, you should be the first to offer love, grace, and forgiveness to your brother and sister. John MacArthur says this, When a church member falls into sin, the fellowship as a whole and each of the members suffer loss because no individual believer in the body is reproducible. Each believer is a unique individual and is uniquely gifted People go to great lengths to regain material wealth when it is lost. To how much greater lengths should Christians go to regain a spiritual treasure more valuable than any earthly possession? His or her brother or sister. We're tempted to say, I have no business getting involved in someone else's life. That's their business. That's between them and God. That may sound spiritually mature or good, that goes against the very words of Jesus when He says, go to your brother and sister and tell him his fault. We are to show a loving concern for one another. We are to seek restoration at all costs. Number two, 
if restoration is the goal, number two, accountability is a church matter. Accountability is a church matter. Look at verse 16 and 17. If he does not listen, take one or two along with you, that there may be a charge, a established charge, by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I'm going to speed up a little bit because I really want to get to the conclusion, the end. The one or two is from the Old Testament. From Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses uh, shall be charge established. So one-on-one, if that doesn't work, bring two or three. Why? Because the Bible tells us to bring two or three. Jesus himself says, take two or three. Why? Because it gets you out of the situation of a he said, she said. Now it's a, we are here for you and with you, and we're all together in this. Proverbs 18, 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Two or three witnesses gives us clear eyes, gives us clear hearts to see the situation. He says, if it doesn't work with two or three, tell it to the who? Church. We're tempted to say, Pastor Ryan, so-and-so sinning, you got to get a hold of him and talk to him. doesn't say that. Jesus didn't say, tell it to the pastor. Jesus didn't say, go to the deacons and, and just tell the deacons and let the deacons handle it. He doesn't say, go to the family. Go, go to your next-door neighbor, tell them, that way you're both in, and can kind of work it that way. If one or two don't work, if one-on-one doesn't work, he says, Bring them before the church. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. I've only seen a church practice this once. It's one of the hardest things a church has to deal with. When we cover up sin or we sweep it under the rug, we're unhealthy. We won't connect with one another one-on-one. We won't, we won't be as tight-knit family like, like we should be. Like the church that Jesus is building. The church that confesses that He is the Christ. A Gentile is someone who was believed to be a pagan worshiper. A pagan. They didn't practice the ways of the Jews. They, didn't, they weren't covenant people like the Jewish people were. They didn't worship like the Jews were. They were different. They were unclean. But if they didn't get it, Jesus goes a step further and says, well, treat them as a tax collector. A tax collector was a Jew who was considered to be a traitor against his own people. Why is that important? A tax collector chose the profession. He chose to be a traitor to his people. One who is unwilling to repent of his or her sin is choosing to walk away from God. God says, be holy because I am holy. The problem is you and I can never be holy. Jesus is the only one without sin. And it's a serious matter when we say, He is the Christ of my life. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. If I profess that Jesus is my all in all, if I profess that He is my firm foundation and yet I choose to walk away from that, 
Jesus says, treat them as if they were an unbeliever. There are questions I have. Do we treat unbelievers harshly? Say no. Or say, say, say this. Say, say we shouldn't. Is Mount Moriah a place where unbelievers can come and hear the good news of Jesus? Everything that we plan, everything we program, the events that we do throughout the year. Yeah, it's for us. It's for fellowship. It's for those things. It's for the unbeliever. It's for our community to hear the good news of Jesus. So when Jesus says if a believer sins and doesn't repent of their sin and they they choose to walk away from their profession, their confession that Jesus is the Christ, treat them as if they were unbeliever. We don't ignore them. We don't kick them out. We don't say, I never want to see you again. We say, come back and hear the good news. Every breath that we have, every move that we make, everything that we do should be for the lost to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. As I was reading this, I don't want to hear the word discipline. I don't like it. Nobody likes it. I was scrolling through Facebook last night on my iPad, and everybody's got this weight loss program they're selling, and everybody's losing weight, and everybody looks good, and I don't. Sitting in bed, and I'm like, it's just me again, eating my donut, looking at Facebook. It takes discipline to lose weight. It takes discipline to love our neighbor. It takes more discipline to love our brother and sister. There was a moment in the life of King David that God sends a friend named Nathan. And it goes like this. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he, and he raised it, and he grew up with him, and he knew his children. He used, to, he used to eat with him and, and drink with the family. He used to sleep with him in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And then there was a a traveler that was coming through, and the rich man, unwilling to use any of his own flock, takes the poor man's lamb, the one that he raised and, and was part of his family. And he prepared it for the man who had come to visit. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan, from God, as a friend to David, looks David in the eyes and he says, you are that man. See, if you know the backstory of David, he was, should have been with the other kings at war, but he stayed home and he 
He looked out on his balcony and he sees another man's wife, Bathsheba. He takes her as his own. Not only that, the, he, he brings her husband home from war and he says, go, go sleep with your husband so nothing's on the, the down low. No, there's nothing under the rug. Just go. And Uriah, being the good general that he is, sleeps outside the home because his fellow soldiers were still at war. So David says, well, I've got a better idea. Take Uriah. He tells the other generals, when the battle gets its fiercest, pull back, but leave Uriah there. Uriah is killed in battle. David not only committed adultery with Bathsheba, you can add to the list, murder. Nathan was a friend to David who says, you are the man who sinned. But notice at the very beginning, the Lord sent Nathan to David. You may be here and confess Christ as Lord, and you may be wandering away from God in that confession. God knows, and He sees, and He's blessed you with a family of brothers and sisters who if they come knocking one day and say, you are the man, you are the woman, instead of getting as angry as you can like David, listen and know that it's coming from a place of love. God is holy and He calls His church to be the same. We're only holy in our faith in Christ. If we choose to walk away from that confession, that profession that He is my Lord and Savior, I would want a brother or sister to come to me and say, you're going the wrong way. That's the goal of all of this. David would go on to write Psalm 51 because of Nathan. Because the Lord brought Nathan into his life. And David says this, and it's for us. If a brother or sister comes to you and say, you are sinning, you're going the wrong way, the only response is confession and repentance to God. It sounds like this. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity or sin. Cleanse me from it. I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Today, church discipline is hard. We don't want to talk about it. But if we think about it as restoration and love, it's better. It sounds easier for me. We're going to sing one more song. This song is called The Invitation. It's the invite to do or make whatever decision you need to make to right the wrong between you and God. Maybe you need to grab a neck of someone and say, pray with me, I need your help. That's the time that we do this. I'm going to pray. I want to leave you with this last verse. James 5.16 Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the calling that you've placed in our lives to follow you and to run after Jesus. 
Help us to lovingly care for one another enough to say what is right and what is wrong based on your word. God, we, we mess up and we sin and we fall on a daily basis. We know that you are merciful and gracious. You've also given us a church family. A church family that we can depend on that when we mess up and when we fall, they will walk with us. My prayer today is that we walk together in unity because of what Christ has done for us. We will lovingly love one another, walking with one another, even when we fall. We pick each other up and we continue to chase after Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.